Now, Father, as we open your word again, may God the Holy Spirit take control of our minds and our hearts and our souls. May the word go forth with clarity, power, and life-changing effect. Let me not be a hindrance in any way to the message that you would have for the people to receive today. Pray that your word will be clear, that it will be understandable, and that it will be useful ammunition for us in our own spiritual battles as we go forth into the world and fight against the strategy of our enemy. In all things, let the Lord Jesus Christ be honored and glorified, we pray in his name. Amen. Just very quickly on page 15, uh, I have there the doctrine of the effect of the victory of the cross on human history. Not going to spend a lot of time on it, uh, but just to hit the high points, which you have in bold, uh, apart from the Christ, uh, from the cross of Christ, mankind had no hope of deliverance from the wrath of God. But because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on the cross, we have so many provisions, and these are only scratching the surface of the provisions that we have. We have redemption, which means the debt of our sin has been paid. We have expiation, which means that our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We have regeneration, which is, of course, the new birth. You must be born again. To every believer, the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been placed to their account. This is what we call the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Because of these things, God the Father is satisfied not only with what Christ has done, but with us as his children. And this is what we call propitiation. Do again to all of these things. We are reconciled to God in a new relationship. And that reconciliation is a relationship of peace. And this is what it means to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So the effect of the work of Christ on the cross on human history is huge. We're going to look at Isaiah 11. You have Isaiah 11 toward the bottom of the page on page 16, but I'm going to go there first. We're going to look at the kingdom, and I know that we could have done the entire conference on any one of these topics, um, and we could have spent a whole lot of time looking at the kingdom from all of the different passages, and I give you a lot of passages that obviously we don't have time to go into. Um, the kingdom is a matter of great expectation to those who are the children of God. Uh, there are a lot of uh, erroneous views about the kingdom. Uh, there are those who think that the rapture of the church somehow happens at the end of the kingdom or the second coming of Christ is going to come at the end of the kingdom or maybe the kingdom isn't even going to happen at all. There are all kinds of crazy views. Uh, some are even so crazy they think that we're going to bring the kingdom on earth. Good luck with that one. Uh, I think the strangest of all is the people who think that we are now in the kingdom. I have a really hard time with that one, but uh, we're just going to look at a few passages that show us what is coming with the future kingdom. Isaiah chapter 11, I'll just read verses 1 through 10. 
Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. You can see the parallel, of course, to Revelation <clears throat> 19. Uh, we always hear the statement, the lion will lay down with the lamb, right? But that's not what the scripture says. Look at verse 6. It's the wolf that will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. A calf with the young lion, battling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. The queen child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the people, and his resting place shall be glorious. If you let your mind dwell just on the various figures that are given here, and think for a little bit of time, meditate a little bit on what it would be like to live in such an environment, uh, it adds meaning to the idea of no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. Those are the negatives. But here we have the wonderful and the blessed positives. You think of the world being a place of plenty. You think of those who have no hunger. You think of those who suffer no harm. Uh, you think of a world that is back to the uh, conditions of Eden, if not better than Eden, and it's going to be an absolutely marvelous and beautiful place. This is the kingdom that God promised to Israel. Now, that kingdom is not, specifically speaking, promised to us. In other words, it's not a kingdom that's being established for us. It's being established for them. We are going to enter into that kingdom as the branch that has been grafted into the tree, as Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 11, but we're going to have a higher position. We are going to be reigning and ruling with the Lord Jesus Christ for a thousand years. And we'll talk about some of that as we work our way through a couple of passages. Go with me to Revelation chapter 20, and we'll pick up and expand on the idea that Isaiah has given us. Two things are going to happen very close together, or at least from our perspective, close together. Might be good for us to just review from 
where we've come from the beginning. So after these things, what is going to happen after these things? Well, you and I are in the time of birth pangs. We're in the time of increasing upheaval. So from the classes that we've had together, what is the next thing that's going to happen? Rapture of the church. So here's our timeline. The Lord descends from heaven. The saints are resurrected. And the more that you can think through this in your mind, the more you have your feet firmly planted in history with an understanding of where you are, where you've come from, and certainly where you're going. So with the rapture of the church, how many believers are left on the earth? None. Ponder that for just a moment. At the moment of the rapture, you have a world filled with unbelievers. We don't have time to go into it, but if we went into Revelation chapter 7, you'll remember there's the sealing of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Uh, they are going to be the first wave. There will be four waves of evangelism during the tribulation period. You'll have the Jewish evangelists beginning the first wave. You'll have their converts. That's the second wave. You have the two great witnesses that are going to witness in Jerusalem. That's the third wave. And then you actually have toward the end of the tribulation period, an angel flying around the earth, proclaiming the everlasting gospel. What more could God do to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ? You know, there are always people who say, well, if only it had been explained better, or if only they had read this, or if only, you know, something else, the circumstances in their life, whatever. The tribulation is going to begin to show us, and more so in the millennium, the hardness of the human heart. Or as we'll see in a few moments, the incorrigibility of the sin nature. You cannot refine the sin nature. You can't improve the sin nature. It is utterly and totally corrupt. And when we come into this world, we come with the greatest gift that God could give to mankind. And that is the gift of freedom. That is the ability to make choices. The first test in the garden was a test of volition. Yes or no to the command of God and the plan of God. The last test in human history is going to be like the first test, and it is the question, will you choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or will you choose the tree of life? So the tribulation will mark here with a big T, seven years of God's final dealing with the children of Israel. There will be Gentiles that will become believers during that time. It's going to be kind of the reverse of now. Now we have in the church predominantly Gentiles with a few Jewish believers. In the tribulation, it's going to be predominantly Jewish believers with a few Gentile believers. But the tribulation is going to last for seven years. What happens next? <coughs> Tribulation ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ comes to earth, defeats his enemies, 
All unbelievers die. Those who endure to the end, remember Matthew 24, 13, who, he who endures to the end shall be saved. He goes into the kingdom in a physical body. I mentioned the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and it tells us that they are all males and they are all virgins. They're going to spread out and fulfill the command that this gospel must be preached in all the world. I hope you can appreciate the fact, being missionaries, Nan and I certainly appreciate the fact that the church has not accomplished in 2,000 years what the 144,000 will do in seven. There are still unreached people groups in this world. There are still people who do not have the word of God in their own language. There are vast areas of this world that have no evangelistic activity going on at all. However, by the end of the tribulation, everyone will have hurt. Now, with the second coming of Jesus Christ and the slaughter of all who are unbelievers, who's left on the earth? Only believers. The kingdom begins only with people in physical bodies, people just like you and I, still have a sin nature, but they're believers. They're going to enter into the kingdom and they are going to begin to populate the kingdom. Lifespans will increase. There are people who are going to enter into the kingdom from the tribulation who are going to make it all the way through the kingdom. They'll be living longer than Methuselah. They'll be living longer than Adam. Greatly extended lifespans. However, they're also going to be doing something else. Unless you feel bad for those 144,000 who had to be celibate, they're going to get to marry in the kingdom. And they're going to have children. And as the world begins to be repopulated and with people living for 300, 500, 700, 1,000 years, you can imagine how quickly the world is going to be populated. There will probably be more people living on the earth at the end of the kingdom than ever before in history. And the astounding thing is that many of them are going to reject Christ. He is going to be reigning on the throne in the kingdom, and they're going to see him. And David is going to be reigning under him in Jerusalem over Israel. Christ reigning over the world, resurrected David, reigning in Jerusalem, perfect environment, perfect peace, no wars, no disease, no sickness, no hunger, no poverty for a thousand years. That's the kingdom. And you know what's going to happen at the end of the kingdom? Among those who are going to be born in physical bodies in the kingdom, there are going to be those who are going to reject Jesus Christ. They're going to see. I've heard people say, well, if God would just show them a sign, if only they could see a miracle, they would believe. I had one guy that tried to enlist me in an expedition to go find the ark. And he said, just imagine if we find the ark, everyone in the world will believe. And I said, no, they won't. It won't make any difference at all. No amount of evidence can convince a person who sets their heart against trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so as it was at the end of the tribulation with great judgment, there's going to be some great judgment at the end of the kingdom. I'm just trying to get a big picture here. What are we going to be doing in the kingdom? We're going to be reigning and ruling with Christ. Let's look at Revelation 20. See if we can put some of this in perspective. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, that is the ancient serpent from the garden, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's the duration of the kingdom, 1,000 years. Not only perfect environment, not only a perfect holy ruler, but no devil. Do you imagine, or can you imagine, what your life would be like today if just the devil and his angels were bound? How much easier would your life be? He would not be blinding the minds of the unbelievers lest they should receive the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would not be tempting unbelievers and believers alike. He would not be leading people astray. He would not be promoting false doctrine. All of those things he's not going to be doing. He's going to be, here it is. See if I can do this right. There he is, sitting in his prison. Now you realize the devil doesn't look like that. We think of him as uh, a little red imp with a forked tail and a pitchfork. We know that he was the most beautiful of all creatures designed by God. He doesn't look that way today. I know I've heard pastors say, if the devil could appear here in our midst, the ladies would swoon, the men would stand astounded at his beauty. I don't believe he looks that way anymore. You know, sin mars beauty. Look at any criminal. The, the more hardened the criminal the more every trace of innocence, every trace of honesty, every trace of integrity, every trace of loyalty, all you have to do is look on the face. It's very much like Abraham Lincoln when he had a guy waiting out in the waiting room to see him, and he looked out through the door, and the secretary came in and said, Mr. President, this man has been waiting two hours to see you. And Abraham Lincoln said, I'll not see that man. His secretary said, why not? He said, I don't like the look on his face. The secretary said, Mr. President, you can't judge a man by the look on his face. And he said, by the time a man has lived 40 years, you can tell by the look on his face the kind of man that he is. We know that sin has that effect. So when the devil is portrayed to us in the book of Revelation, how is he portrayed? A great fiery dragon. That's not something beautiful. That's something awesome and fearful and terrifying. And so the dragon, the devil, Satan, is going to be bound for a thousand years. Verse 3 says, 
the angel threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not, listen closely, deceive the nations any longer. What if that the deception of nations stopped right now? What a different world you and I would be living in from this point forward. He would deceive the nations no longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a little while. Why in the world would it be a necessity for the devil to be released? Well, I'll give you a little hint. To prove the incorrigibility of the sin nature. Your sin nature cannot be reformed, educated, improved, trained in any way. As a matter of fact, unless you take advantage of the breaking of the power of the sin nature at the moment of salvation, your sin nature will only get worse and worse and worse. We'll see that momentarily. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Here is the resurrection of tribulation saints. And we assume that Old Testament saints since they're all a part of the same age, are going to be resurrected at the same time. They are going to come to life and reign with Christ. What are you and I going to be doing? I think the thrones at the beginning of the verse relate to church age saints, and we're going to be reigning and ruling with Christ at a level above them. We're going to be heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. By the way, remember something. I think on one of our pages here, uh, page 17, we'll hit it in just a moment, the false doctrine of outer darkness. It is a horrible, despicable, destructive, false teaching. And I'll get to that in just a moment. Never forget Actually, we'll say verse 3, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. We have three kinds of hope, do we not? We look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the blessed hope of the glorious return of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. We have a purifying hope, 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself. We can tell if we're living in hope, because if we're living in hope, our life is changing. We're able to look back six months, a year. We can see that we've grown. We can see that we've learned. We can see that we have a greater stature spiritually, greater spiritual maturity. Why? Because we have applied the purifying hope. But it's not only a blessed hope and a purifying hope, it's a living hope. It's a hope that makes life worth living. And that living hope, according to Peter, is looking for something. I want you to get this. The living hope applies now. 
but it applies now because it's looking for something. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, looking for an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. Does that sound like outer darkness to you? Does that sound like if you're not a super believer, if you're not a max performer, if you're not really on top of it, if you're not one of the approved, you're going to be cast into outer darkness? I don't think so. Every believer in Jesus Christ has an inheritance from the Heavenly Father. Don't confuse our basic family inheritance with the idea of eternal reward. They're not the same. Our inheritance is eternal, undefiled, fades not away, reserved in heaven while we're kept by the power of God. Is there reward above and beyond that? Absolutely. Can we enhance that initial inheritance? Absolutely. That's what we're here for. That's what our life is all about. That's why we're given options every day. That's why we can choose to examine ourselves daily and make sure that we're walking in the spirit so we don't walk in the lust of the flesh. That's why we have that opportunity. When church is on, when Bible class is being taught, we have that opportunity. We can choose to be in Bible class. We can choose to fellowship with God's people, or we can choose to do the other things that are a constant distraction. We have those choices. God allows us the freedom to make those choices. But don't ever forget, choices have consequences. The great test of human history from beginning to end, the test of our dominion over this earth is also our dominion over ourself. And it's the decisions that we make on a moment by moment and day by day basis. There are a lot of wonderful things that are given to us, but the greatest power that we hold is the power to choose, the power to make decisions. As it's often been said, if you sow a thought, you reap an act. If you sow an act, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap character. But when you sow character, you reap destiny. Sooner or later, we are making, as it were, our own bed, and we're going to sleep in it. We're going to have to deal with the consequences of our decisions. So, coming back to Revelation 20, thrones. What are we going to be doing? We're going to be ruling and reigning and we're going to be serving. And that will take into consideration, of course, the spiritual capacity that we have, the faithfulness that we've demonstrated. All of those things are going to come into the degree to which we will be reigning with Christ in the kingdom. The rest of the dead, verse 5, rest of the dead being unbelievers, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. All dead of all history. Old Testament believers. Church age believers. Uh, sorry, unbelievers. All unbelievers of all of history. Where are they? They're in a place called Hades. What is Hades? Hades is a holding prison. You know, it's like a guy that gets arrested for burglary. They put him in jail. He waits until his sentence. When he gets his sentence, that's when he really starts 
his prison term or a person, let's say, that commits murder. Well, right now, the unbeliever is in the holding cell. And the holding cell is called hell. And hell is bad, but it's not as bad as the penitentiary. The penitentiary is called the lake of fire. And we're going to see that in just a moment. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. This is confusing for some people because it sounds like the first resurrection is the resurrection of unbelievers. You have to look at it the way he's stating it, that there is the resurrection of the dead that came to life in verse 4. That is a part of the first resurrection. The rest of the dead are not a part of that. Because the first resurrection, if you will, just turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul can explain it better than I can. 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15 is the longest extended section in the entire Bible on the resurrections. Very important passage of scripture. We're just going to deal with a little short snippet of it in verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man, Adam, came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die... Every member of the human race is born spiritually dead. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. Every human being is either in Adam or in Christ. Verse 23, but each in his own order, each in his own order. The idea here is of a military battalion. Each is going to be raised and made alive in his own order. Number one, Christ, the first fruits. That's the resurrection from the tomb. Number two. Those who are Christ, it is coming. Two parts. Christ comes here, church age believers. Christ comes here, tribulation believers. Two parts to his coming. Then comes the end. I take the end here to be not only resurrection of millennial saints, but the resurrection of the unbelievers. In other words, it wraps up the whole resurrection program. That I would take to be the end. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom here. We're talking end of the kingdom now. To the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. When's that going to happen? It's going to happen here. Now let's look at how it happens by going back to our passage of Revelation 20. Verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. What does the first resurrection mean? It means that they are a believer. Whether they're resurrected at the rapture of the church, whether they're resurrected at the end of the tribulation, whether they're resurrected as a physical living saint going through the kingdom, first resurrection encompasses all who are believers. So blessed and holy are those that have part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. What is the second death? It is something that is so horrible and so awful and so terrible that the worst terms, the most terrifying terms used in Scripture are used to describe that second death, which is eternal separation from God. 
For the believer, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When we get to this point, we've had a thousand years, perfect environment, perfect justice, perfect rulership, Christ visible, resurrected saints visible. Have you ever thought about how interesting it's going to be here? You're going to have resurrected Old Testament saints. David, Moses, I mean, think of all the greats who ever would come to your mind, Boaz and Ruth, Samson, who knows? All of those saints resurrected. You're going to have resurrected church age saints. I know that the tendency for us in the church age is to think, oh, I can't wait until I see Moses. I can't wait until I see Elijah. I can't wait until I see David. What you don't realize is they're all there waiting and saying, I can't wait till I see these guys. You and I have a standing they never had. We have provisions that they never had. They can't wait until their number is complete and we get there with them. But we're going to have resurrected Old Testament saints, resurrected New Testament saints, angels involved in the running of the earth, as well as men and women in physical bodies reproducing and having kids. It's going to be a very interesting time. But it's going to come to an end. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Remember it said earlier, he must be released for a while. Why would God release the devil once they got him in prison? Why would it be a requirement or necessity for the devil to be released? Interesting question. What's he going to do? He's, well, you say by now he's reformed himself. He's rehabilitated. He's been in prison. He did his thousand year stint. He paid his debt to society. Now he's going to be a good guy. No. Verse 8 says, He will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog. Uh, were actually, uh, there was actually a kingdom, the kingdom of Gagu, it's in Turkey, it, the Lydians. And uh, because of its hostility to God, Gog and Magog became a symbol of the nations that are hostile to God. And uh, it's used that way, of course, in Ezekiel 38 as well, when you have uh, the great battle. Gog and Magog is going to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. After a thousand years, do you think if Jesus Christ could come down and walk this earth today, people would believe in him? No. You think if he came down and raised a bunch of people from the dead, that the unbelievers would believe in him? Do you think they'd finally be convinced? No. They've had a thousand years to view the grace of God, the justice of Christ, the plenty and the provision that God brings on the earth. They're going to come up on the broad plain like the sand of the sea. They're going to cover the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire will come down from heaven and devour them. This is going to be the quickest act of justice ever. 
that bit. And what happens when they get burned up? They're going to end up from fire to fire. Why? Well, let's read on. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. I want you to notice where the beast and the false prophet are. When did they go there? Right here. At the end of the tribulation, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. A thousand years later, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. And guess who's still there? Do you think the sin nature can be reformed? You know, there are people that teach that you go to, whether you take the Catholic purgatory or you take other positions, the universalist position, you suffer long enough and it purifies you and it gets your mind right and you decide that you're going to walk the straight and narrow and ultimately everyone's going to end up in heaven. Not so. Just not going to happen. The beast and the false prophet are still there. They will be tormented day and night for a hundred years. No? Day and night for a thousand years. No. Day and night forever and ever. When Jesus talks about hell, he uses some of the most awful language. Just trying to make sure I've hit on everything. When he talks about the resurrection body of the unbeliever, it's a body that is designed to be dying forever and never die. Always dying, but never able to die. We'll hit on some of it here in a minute. Always dying, but never able to die. Think on it. Dwell on it. You know, we rejoice in our salvation. We rejoice that we have eternal life. And I realize that, you know, it's a joke now, the hellfire and brimstone that people used to teach and preach. But I want to tell you something. We don't talk enough about hell. We don't deal with the reality of hell. And the reason the reality of hell is as horrible as it is, is because the reality of sin is as horrible and incorrigible as it is. You can't refine it. You can't reform it. You can't rehabilitate it. You can't change it. It's going to only get worse and worse. Do you realize that without regeneration in a resurrection body, the unsaved in torment in the lake of fire are only going to get worse and worse and worse throughout all eternity? Without end, without limit, without any bottom to the depths that they are going to reach, it is going to get worse and worse and worse. Can I ask you a question? When's the last time you actually shared the gospel with an unbeliever? A 
because a lot of us celebrate our salvation and look forward to eternity in the presence of Christ, and we wouldn't walk across the street to give the gospel to a lost soul. We're too proud. We're too busy. We're too wrapped up in ourselves. And we rub shoulders every single day with people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. At least they need the opportunity. At least they need someone to be honest with them and tell them that the end of this life is either heaven or hell. There are no other options or choices. And each one of us is given that marvelous, wonderful power called freedom. Without the ability to choose, without the ability for us to make those decisions, life is not worth living. And I know that the Calvinist position is a strong position in the world today. I'm going to tell you right now, it dishonors Jesus Christ. It defames God the Father. It is a blasphemy against grace, and it makes a mockery of judgment. Because... According to that philosophy, they had no choice anyway. Not only that, it's a lie. Final judgment. Final judgment in verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead. How do we know that this can't apply to any believer? Believers are not dead. He who believes in me shall never die, right? I saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is called the book of life. The dead were judged from the things that are written in the books according to their deeds. The book of Daniel talks a lot about different books in heaven, but we know that there will be at least two categories used at this judgment. There's a book of life, and there is a book or books of deeds. They're going to be judged from the book. The book of life, and the book of deeds. The sea gave up the dead which was in it. Death and hell gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Question, why are they judged according to their deeds? Because their name's not in the book of life. The book of life, the Lamb's book of life, contains the names of those who have believed. If their name is not found here, they have to be judged here. And what is it that's recorded here? Their deeds. So you say, ah, now is where we come to the juicy part where we get to hear all the terrible things that these people did. No, not so. Why not? 
Because guess what? Deeds does not equal sins. How do we know that? Christ died for the sins of every member of the human race. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. Every unbeliever is going to realize at the great white throne judgment that Christ died and paid the penalty, the debt, for all of their sins. I don't know if there are going to be some that are going to be standing there, and when they realize it, they're going to go, this is not going to be so bad, because I'm better than most people. You know, I've worked a lot with prisoners, and I found out one thing about prisoners. They can always tell you why they're not as bad as other prisoners. Yeah, I may have done this, but I'm not like those guys that do that. And we can always rationalize why we're better than someone else. But when you get judged according to your deeds, and the standard is absolute righteousness, You know what you find out? Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness is as filthy rag. You know the Hebrew translation of that? All our righteousness is like the cloth of a menstruous woman. You ever heard that? Why is that analogy made? Because when that cloth receives that menstrual blood, what do you know? There was never conception. Therefore, there's no life. Get the point? All our righteousness apart from Christ is like a filthy rag. And after being judged by the best they had to offer, by the good they thought they did, and then seeing it in light of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, you know what they're going to do? It's going to be an amazing moment. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 3. This company of dead who are called up out of hell and out of the sea and every place wherever they may be, you know what that great company is going to do? That company that surrounded Jerusalem like the sands of the seashore, do you know what they're going to do? Every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess, and they are going to begin to proclaim the praise and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as they convict themselves and condemn themselves to the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. That is the great white throne judgment. And that is going to be, for them, a horrible moment. Death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Why the second death? They died once physically. Now they're going to die eternally. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I have in your notes the false doctrine of outer darkness. I should have covered that earlier when we were here. I'll leave it to you to look into that. Uh, it is, uh, of course, uh, it's just, you know, it baffles me why, why pastors want to do everything they can to discourage the saints. Why they want to do everything they can to promote fear. The exegetical, hermeneutical, obvious failures. I mean, these are failures that a sixth grader would catch. 
Just notice, they build the whole thing on the outer darkness mentioned in Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 22, 13, Matthew 25, 30. Is there anything that stands out to you there? Outer darkness is never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible except Matthew. And who was the gospel of Matthew written to? It was written to Israel. And in addition to presenting Christ as the Messiah of Israel, what else is the book written for? It's written as an indictment against the nation for rejecting their Messiah. That's why when we get to Matthew 23, we have the sevenfold woe of Jesus Christ on the nation, and he declares to them their condemnation. Why in the world would any pastor want to grab something out of context from the age of Israel, not from the age of the church, drag it into the church age, and then build? One guy wrote a book an inch thick. I read his book. I'll tell you what, when I got done reading his book, I was so depressed I could hardly stand it. The most depressing, demoralizing thing that I have ever read. And he called it volume one. He was going to come out with volume two. Because once you put on a twisted lens, guess what? You can find stuff everywhere in scripture that matches your preconceived theological position. Both Dr. Alfred Edersheim, if they would have just done a little bit of research in his great book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which was printed in 1953, and also Dr. Craig Keener in the IVP Bible background commentary show that the term outer darkness was a well-known term in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ for hell. The rabbis used it. That's how it was known and understood at the time. And that's exactly the way that Jesus was using it. So don't fall into the whole idea of outer darkness. When the judgment comes, when the people end up in the lake of fire, then the words of Jesus will be fulfilled. If you'll just look with me at the bottom of page 19, here is the warnings of Jesus fulfilled. The true warning of outer darkness is synonymous with Hades or Gehenna, the awful warning of a place of constant dying. If you look at Mark 9, 42 to 49, and Isaiah 66, 24, in the injunction that Jesus gives to cut off any offending part of your body, he said, it would be better for you to go into life, into the kingdom, maimed, than to spend eternity in a place where your worm doesn't die, and the fire is not extinguished. Where the worm, your body is being decayed. Imagine having a resurrection body that can be decayed, worm-eaten forever, in flame forever, and no way to stop it. Did you realize that the most horrible moment in hell for any person is going to be the first second they're there? Do you realize that that first second is going to last forever? No time, no duration, no end. We ought to dwell on it. We ought to think on it. Because we're here on a rescue mission. And our rescue mission 
is to tell every person we have the opportunity that God leads us. He doesn't always lead us to tell everyone. Sometimes we come into contact people, we're just not led to speak. The tragedy is that we're led to speak and we don't speak. That's the tragedy. Why in the world would missionaries give up everything they can have here back home, go to the foreign field, live in poverty, live in hardship, battle against sickness and everything that they battle against, live in the darkness, fight against the hostility of people that they work among and spend their lives there because they have a very true sense of hell. They realize that those people without Christ are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. I want to say again, I think as pastors, we need to dwell a little bit more on hell. We need people to understand the awful consequences of rejecting Christ. If you look at page 20, just as the hour ends, the doctrine of the incorrigibility of the sin nature, the revolt of unsaved mankind at the end of the kingdom age demonstrates the absolute incorrigibility of the sin nature. The last test of human volition is in many ways parallel to the first in the Garden of Eden. Man has had a perfect environment with the Lord present and visible, will still believe the deception of the devil and choose contrary to the gracious plan of God. How incorrigible is the sin nature? From the moment we're born, according to Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, our sin nature is growing more corrupt. It doesn't get better. It doesn't stay the same. It only becomes more and more corrupt. Here's the good news. I hate to leave you with bad news. Here's the good news. Once you believe in Jesus Christ, that power is broken. The power of the old man is broken. It's not gone. It's still there. You know why? Because volition is the issue of human existence. Volition, not status, not success, not what you make of yourself, not what lucky breaks you get. One issue every day, every moment of our life, there's one issue that is hanging over our head. What will you choose? What will you choose? Choose wisely. Choose wisely because every choice has a consequence. And wise decisions have good consequences and foolish decisions have bad consequences, not only in time, but for all eternity. Every moment that you and I choose to spend out of fellowship with God is a period of our life that is lost forever. Do you ever think about that? Lost forever. Every time you and I choose to humble ourselves under the leadership and command of God the Holy Spirit in obedience to the Word of God, we are buying up a portion of time that we are going to carry with us in eternity. It's called redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. When you and I stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, our final judgment is going to be a 30-second soundbite, a minute soundbite, a 10-minute soundbite, or maybe a record 
of consistent faithfulness because all of the time that you and I spend in obedience to the Lord and in fellowship with him is going to be there with us. The record of your life is going to be kept in the books of heaven. The record of your life will only contain those portions of your life in fellowship and in obedience to God. How long will the record of your life be? Three sentences? A few paragraphs? Maybe a book? You're writing your story today. We have the privilege of writing the story of our life. Every day we make decisions how the story is going to go. And ultimately that story is going to be known and read by all. Again, not your sins, not your failures, not even your human good, only. Think about this. The only story that remains is the good story of your life in fellowship with God and obedience to his word. The question is not, will your story be good? It'll be good. The question is, how long will it be? Again, a sentence, a paragraph, or a book. Today we make the decisions. Tomorrow the decisions make us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your grace. Again, bless your word to our understanding. Challenge us to realize that life is precious. Life is powerful. Life has purpose. Help us to fulfill the plan for which you have placed us on this earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.